So I didn't have that notion at all. And I didn't think I was going to Africa to feel African or that I was going to become, become an African. What I wanted to do was no, nothing other than what I did when I traveled in Europe or when I traveled in Mexico or in, in Latin America, is put myself in the shoes of somebody I was traveling next to hmm. and just live that life for a while. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today is part of my ongoing series of interviews with people I quote in my new book, The Vagabond's Way. I chat with travel writer Eddie L. Harris. Eddie is perhaps best known for his 1988 book, Mississippi Solo, though my favorite title of his is a book called Native Stranger, A Black American's Journey into the Heart of Africa, which I quote in five different places in The Vagabond's Way. I actually discovered Eddie's writing back when I was a teenager, and to this day, I consider him to be one of the great late 20th century English language travel writers, on par with other writers I read when I was young, people like Jan Morris and Pico Iyer and Tim Cahill and Paul Theroux, and I say as much in my new book. Yet Eddie's genius as a travel writer is underappreciated in the United States, in part because Native Stranger, with its open-minded but unromanticized take on Africa, as well as Eddie's conviction that his own travels in Africa left him feeling more American than African, was at odds with the Afrocentrist ideologies popular with American critics at the time. In retrospect, I guess you could say Eddie got canceled by America's cultural gatekeepers back in the early 1990s. But to use the term canceled is to imply that Eddie brought some kind of ideological lens to his journey through Africa, when in fact he was just journeying through the continent in a slow manner, taking the same conveyances and sleeping in the same guest houses as everyday Africans, and describing the people he met and the things he saw along the way. That's exactly why I found his book so fascinating, so true of the experience of the vagabonding style of travel that I've come to love in my own wanderings. Eddie was not, after all, traveling to Africa as an analyst or a scholar with a thesis. He just went there to see what would happen if he traveled there slowly and close to the ground for the better part of a year. His goal was less about connecting with his own presumed African heritage than with getting a sense for what it was like to be there. Africa, he wrote, is not some unified mythic place, but a multitude of very real and complicated places. And as an outsider, one can't really see it until one shakes off the lenses and assumptions of one's home culture. And this includes the idealistic fantasies that one might bring to Africa. In this episode, Eddie and I talk about the joys of dirtbag travel and what you can see when you get out of the bubble of comfort that comes with tourism in developing countries. We talk about how you experience time in a different way when you travel to parts of the world that aren't bound to strict schedules. We talk about what it's like to encounter beggars, not just in Africa, but in a place like France, where Eddie has lived since the 1990s. Eddie talks about what it's like to live in France as a black American and how the American experience in France has and hasn't changed over the years. My interview with Eddie took place in the Luxembourg Garden in Paris last month, and you can hear the sounds of the city all around us. At one point, I read a passage about him from my new book, and in retrospect, I realized I didn't do a very smooth job of that. The Vagabond's Way is also available in audiobook form, and I swear I do a much better and more professional job of reading the chapters in that format. My podcast conversation with Eddie Harris starts by talking about how Native Stranger wasn't always well-received by American cultural gatekeepers when it was first published. Let's listen in. But I think what really happened was the message of the book was not a message that Americans were ready to receive. And the message is, well, the question is, a black American goes to Africa, when you come home, everybody asks, did you find your roots? A, I wasn't looking for my roots, and B, if I were looking for them, I couldn't find them. And as I'm traveling around Africa, what I'm feeling more and more is I'm just an American. So when a black American traveling to Africa comes home and answers the I don't find my roots in Africa question, and don't call me an African-American. I'm an American. Hmm. And nobody wanted to hear that. Black people certainly didn't want to hear it because now we're African-American or Afro-American and that's our identity. Mm-hmm. White people didn't want to hear it because the minute you say you're an American, you put yourself on a par with them and that was not hmm. Hmm. kosher, so hmm. to speak. So I lost out on both sides. So if there was a controversy, I mean, a controversy would have been good. Right. That generally leads to more sales. Right. It leads to more noise, leads to more sales. Mm-hmm. But in my case, it didn't lead to anything except black people. Black people came to see me when I did a signing for the next book, South of Haunted Dreams, to tell me how much they hated me and they were not going to buy this book because they didn't like that book. So in, the, in, the, in what it seems to be in the black community, 
that book was, that book made me persona non grata. And South of Hearted Dreams didn't help because that message too is a message of reconciliation. Let us reconcile with the South and let's try to fix this whole place as opposed to saying the South is this evil thing from the past. They're the only culpable ones. Instead of looking at America as Malcolm X once said, Dixie starts at the Canadian, the Canadian border. Interesting. And we yeah. need to fix this whole place and let's not just pick, pick out the South. And if you look at the South, I'm much more Southern than I am African. Hmm. My hmm. roots as a black person, my roots as a, a man named Harris are in Virginia. My roots as a black person are in the South, what I eat, what I like, the music I listen to. Let's recognize that we as black people are Southerners, hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. But kind of like slavery, for a long time, black people in America wanted to put a distance between themselves and slavery. Like, slavery was this big shame, we don't want to even talk about it. And I think being a Southerner is kind of like that. When I was a kid, to say that you were from Mississippi was, whoa, you don't want to be from Mississippi, any place but Mississippi. And on this trip that I made through the South, I made this reconciliation with slavery and with Mississippi and with the rest of the South. Because the barbecue I like is southern barbecue. The grits I like are southern grits. And the, the stigma of slavery is only a stigma if you allow it to be. And I made, a, made, a, made peace with slavery itself in that if my ancestors had been me, they would have said no, gotten killed, and I wouldn't be here now. So slavery, even though it was not a good thing, certainly led to some good things, one of which is me. So the, the people who came to your reading to say that they didn't like you, had they read Native Stranger or had they just heard about Native Don't Stranger? Don't know. They, we never got that far. Mm-hmm. One guy in Denver, Colorado, he was so angry with me. <laughs> and the same thing happened in Los Angeles, but he was so angry with me that he just stopped at me at the bookstore before I was going in. And he didn't go in. He didn't want to go into the bookstore because they had my books there. He just wanted me to tell me how much he disliked me, not knowing me, of course. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't want to read my books, and he wasn't going to read the old book, he wasn't going to read the new book, he wasn't going to read anything I ever wrote. That's strangely sort of a Trump America way of thinking, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very deep, years ago. a very deep conservative, obviously it's in a different racial category, but it's a very deeply conservative way of looking at culture. And, you know, um, I read your first two books years and years ago, but then I revisited Native Stranger before I wrote my latest book, sort of expecting more controversial content. And then it's just, I mean, you, you're really harsh on colonialism there. Yeah. You very much identify less, of, less as an African than as American, certainly, ultimately, but it, it just seemed so sympathetic. It, rereading it in the context that there was some pushback against it makes me wonder what people were finding to push back against. It, it seemed like a pretty generous assessment of Africa, but just sort of a, an assertion of your Americanness as well. An assertion of my Americanness for sure. Mm-hmm. Africans who read the book loved it and they said, man, you nailed it. But there is a line in the book, which may be the line that caused me the most problem of the, from the entire book. Hmm. And my editor asked me to take it out. Before it was published. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I said, no, I mean, this is what happened. Mm -hmm. I'm on this big bargy boat thing going up the Congo River. Mm -hmm. And I run across some English speakers, some English people. Mm -hmm. And we were having a conversation or two conversations or just hanging out together. The captain calls me up to the bridge and this one guy whose name is Justin, Justin Kenrick, I think, calls us up to to the bridge and he accuses me of whatever he's accusing me of by saying, this man sold your ancestors into slavery. This man's ancestors sold your ancestors into slavery. And my knee-jerk reaction was to look at Justin and say, thank you. (laughs) Because without that sold into slavery story, I'm born in Africa, if I'm born at all, and not in, in Indianapolis. And after traveling in Africa for a year, I'm thinking, I'd much rather be born in Indianapolis than in Lagos, Nigeria. Well, I got that sense from your book that you were really frustrated by the way people without power 
in Africa were sort of put under the thumb of people with power, all of whom were black, right? Mm -hmm. And you just, you chafed at like sort of the controlling bureaucracy and the, the hierarchical aspects of life as a traveler in Africa. You just didn't like being told what to do because you were lower on the officialdom hierarchy than whoever wanted the, the bribe or whatever was going on. Yeah, it was, it was partly that. Partly I didn't want to be on the, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And I don't want to be low on the totem pole. But also, I think I'm bristling at things that an American would bristle at. Okay. Bribery mm -hmm. doesn't pass in the States, or I'm sure it does in some, in some quarters, but normally bribery is frowned upon. And yet in Africa, if you want something done, slip a couple of bills under the table. Or if you get in trouble, slip another couple of bills under the table and the trouble disappears. And I just didn't like living under those sorts of circumstances where you get shaken down just because you look like a tourist and you might have money. Hmm. And it led to a, a, lot of, a lot of frustrating situations. Even getting, I had a shipment of film sent over from, my mother sent me a shipment of film to Casablanca. And just the process of going to the airport and picking it up and the crap you have to go through, the inefficiencies drove me nuts. The fact that Africans don't trust other Africans, or at least that's how it looked, because if you wanted to change money, you go to the counter, you give them whatever instrument you've got, either an American Express traveler's check or cash, they're gonna fill out a form and give it to somebody else who's gonna stamp it and give it to somebody else who's gonna stamp it. And all these people have to stamp it before you can get the, the cash you're looking for. It just underscored partly the, the imprint of French colonialism, hmm. the fact that the French didn't trust the Africans, and then the Africans by that same mistrust of each other. Hmm. And it's also a kind of tribalism, and the tribalism to me is just racism with people of the same color. And I bristle at racism no matter how it shows up. And so, I guess you ended up, at what point, I mean, did you go in sort of idealistically thinking you were searching for your roots? No. Did, okay. That was never a question. My, okay. So the whole thing started in a conversation on the telephone. My life happens on the telephone. An editor from Putnam contacted me wondering why a Mississippi Solo had just come out. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to know why Putnam didn't get a crack at Mississippi Solo. Mississippi Solo was very successful. Mississippi Solo was very successful. And it's a good book, if mm -hmm. I say so myself. Yeah. And I said to this woman, I sent that book three times to Putnam, three different editors. They all mm -hmm. said no. Mm -hmm. So we had a nice little conversation after that. And she said, well, what are you doing next? I said, without thinking, and don't know why I said this, I'm going to Africa. And she made me an offer on the telephone. She asked, are you gonna write about it? To which I said, oh yeah. <laughs> and she offered me a ton of money and I said, well, we better talk to my agent then. I didn't even have an agent, but I said, we should talk to my agent. And I quickly went out and found one. Right. And that's how that happened. So I was just traveling to Africa because I'd never been to Africa before. Hmm. I was a traveler. I'd been in lots of other places. I had never been to Africa. I had some money from the Mississippi Solo book. And I'm thinking on this, in this conversation, which was not pre-planned, I was not thinking about Africa before the conversation. Well, I'll just go to Africa. And she said, okay, I said, okay, and I went to Africa. So no preconceptions about looking for my roots, because realistically, you can't, you can look, but even the Alex Haley story in Jufre is a little bit concocted. Hmm. So I didn't have that notion at all. And I didn't think I was going to Africa to feel African or that I was going to become, become an African. What I wanted to do was no, nothing other than what I did when I traveled in Europe or when I traveled in Mexico or in, in Latin America, was put myself in the shoes of somebody I was traveling next to hmm. and just live that life for a while. And that was it. That's why I went. And that's what I did. I lived my life in the shoes of an African or several Africans because Africa is not a place, but many places. And I wrote that book and got excoriated for it. <laughs> well, I think the reason why I like that book so much is that exact reason, is that you're putting yourself in the shoes of the people you're traveling in and among 
which feels to me like a central mission of travel writing. You know, regardless of what your mission is, you know, with your, if one is looking for one's roots, roots in Poland or Papua New Guinea, when you get there, regardless of your mission, traveling in the shoes, getting some sort of empathy for the people you're around feels like a mission. And then also you traveled a little bit like a dirtbag, and I like dirtbag travel. You, <laughs> you, you were sort of taking old buses and staying in old hotels. and Well, that's part of the traveling in the shoes of somebody else, mm. because they're not mm. flying first class from Lagos to Bujumbura. They're going by bus or by boat or by whatever means, or, or taxi Bruce, which is my number one means of travel. And how they went is what, what I did, and how, what they ate is what I ate. Explain taxi Bruce. Taxi Bruce in those days, I'm not sure it still exists, was a Peugeot 504 that they crammed as many people inside as possible to go from point A to point B. And the driver waited until his car was full, mm-hmm. and then he took off, charged a certain amount of money, depending on the distance, and maybe depending on how many people he had at the same time. And he took off to point B. And he dumped you, dumped you out, and if you wanted to continue on to someplace else, you did the same thing going from point B to point C. Well, I think one reason why I'm a little surprised that there was this bristling among some readers of the book is that one of the most emblematic scenes to me is when you visited like a tourist hotel someplace in West Africa, where literally the white folks were sitting on the other side of the wall um, and sort of enjoying a pool and a pleasant in- environment. Basically, it was clear that Europeans, maybe, maybe even French Europeans had flown down for the weather. And they were sitting around a pool completely cut off from this city in Africa. And you went in and uh, the way you captured just the absurdity of that, um, it felt like it would be hard to, to take issue with your, uh, just, just the way you called out sort of the, the, the colonialist texture of that, of living sort of in a compound amid an actual living, breathing city and just sort of hanging out next to the pool and, and speaking with other Europeans. Yeah, and drinking Mai Tais or whatever they're drinking and yeah. not at all interacting. And, and travelers from in the, from the Western world do that all the time, mm. not just in Africa. Mm. But I've got friends who do it in Mexico. They go to this compound and they never leave the compound. Mm-hmm. And to me, you're not in Mexico. You're in Club Med or Club whatever it is that you're doing. And the only reason I travel is to be with the folk. I was in London just the other day, and I asked myself, I wonder if Donald Trump has ever been here, to mm-hmm. this spot, and not surrounded by a bunch of people, and not in a car. I was in Soho, Soho Square. I had just finished eating a Chinese meal, surrounded by a gazillion people. And I'm thinking, Donald and Ivanka and Warren Buffett they never got out of the car to go to this place. So they've never really been to the London that I've been to. They certainly have not been to the Africa or the Mexico or the Guatemala that I've been to. And it's their loss, in a way, um, that I think that these insulated environments we're in, again, it's why I love Native Strangers so much, is that every day you, you go out into the actual Africa that Africans are experiencing, sort of without preconceptions. You know, you're just walking through and seeing, seeing what you find. And I like that. I, I like that old dirtbag way of travel where what you find is what you find, you know? <laughs> and then in a way, the price of admission is your dirtbag ticket. It's your willingness to get in the bus that's full of people. It's your willingness to stay in the same hotels that local merchants and, and people are, are staying in because that's not really part of the tourist industry. That's just life as it's being lived. And it felt like there was a lot of that in Native Stranger, which maybe, I don't know, I feel like Native Stranger doesn't get credit as a great travel book because it just, in an unvarnished way, without taking a thesis someplace, it just talks about what travel is like uh, in a way that that, that stays with us, I think. That's nice. I I like hearing that. And I think it is that. It's just, there is no mission in this book. It's just going basically from Tunisia to Cape Town. Hmm. And how do I get there? This guy's going there and he's gonna eat this thing when he gets to this place. I'm gonna go there with him and I'm gonna eat that same thing when he gets there. And along the way, if you're not staying in the tourist hotels, you end up also staying in people's houses. Hmm. And you discover this kind of generosity that you don't find any place else. You get this generosity that is astounding. 
and you can only do that if you're on the bus with a bunch of people and a, and a load of chickens or some goats or a sheep. And you end up in some guy's house who wants to make you feel comfortable and he gives you the bigger portion of the chicken because they only have one chicken for the whole family, but you're the guest and you get the chicken and you get the bed hmm. and we're going to sleep on the floor. Hmm. And you don't get that staying in the tourist hotels. You don't get that in the tourist experience at all. You certainly don't get it staying in the Club Abazaba compound yeah. for the entire vacation that you're there. So it's not a vacation, I guess is the thing. It's really, it's a journey. Yeah, it's a journey. And, you, and you, you talk philosophically about the idea of journey in your writing, but then it's also, you're not going as a tourist, but you're also not going as a journalist with the thesis trying to interpret this part of the world. You're just going to take a string of buses and boats. I never, I never thought to characterize this this way, but I, maybe that's why I like Native Stranger, is that it's a guy going from Tunisia to Cape Town and he's just going to go the slow way. Yeah. <laughs> it is the slow way. But it was also the superficial way, and I never thought about that so much either. Because you're really just skimming the surface. You're not spending a whole lot of time, or I didn't anyway. You're not stopping. Spend a whole lot of time in any one place. Hmm. You're stopping certainly, but you're stopping briefly and you're going and you're moving on. And you're continuing continually moving on till you get to the final destination and then you can go home. And you're barely scratching the surface of what life is really like in that place. And that might be part of the political polemic anti-native stranger feeling as well. People maybe wanted me to dig deeper into a, a particular place. But that wasn't the nature of my trip. It wasn't why I was on this journey. My trip was about movement, and my life was about movement. I move all the time, and I think I'm just addicted to the movement and not so much to any particular place. Hmm. As a traveler, you got a lot of, and I think anybody who's traveled in that slow way finds themselves getting invited to weddings and dinners and other things that would never happen on the tourist trail. In Africa specifically, was it an advantage or disadvantage to be a black American? Because was there sort of a connection to the idea of African, the African diaspora? Or would I have done better there as a guy who was obviously not from there? It's an interesting question because it's a mixed, it's a bit of both hmm. advantage and disadvantage. It is when I was hitchhiking, because I did a fair share of a fair bit of hitchhiking as well. And when you hitchhike, if you hitchhike 20 meters from a white guy hitchhiking, the car is going to stop for the white guy, hmm. which I found ridiculous. In Africa, in Africa, stop the white guy. Yeah. yeah. Because it's safer, because he's got money, because I don't know why. But one of the sensations I got as a black person in Africa was partly, welcome brother, because we know you're an American, we're happy to see you here. Mm -hmm. And the other flip side of that coin is, can you help me get out of here? Or yeah. can you help me financially? Can you help me, can you help me? So it's got a, there's a flip side to the generosity of Africa, because people, a lot of people, since I'm an American, we're looking for some sort of help, either to get to America, because I had one guy in Algeria who wrote many, many letters trying to get me to sponsor him to go to America. He wanted to go to America. And a lot of other people, too, just, ask, just asking me, how do we, how do you, can you help me? How do we get out of here? And how do we go live in New York? Hmm. Crazy. Hmm. And yet, they were happy to see me, an American who did take the trouble to travel there and to travel in the way that I was traveling. Because if, and I don't want to generalize, but it did not seem that there were many black Americans who were traveling the slow way. No kidding. Huh. If they traveled to Dakar, they stayed in Dakar, or they maybe took a train to Ziganshore or someplace else, but they mostly were in this one place doing more like a tourist thing. We're going to Ghana and going to the slave holding pins and feeling that experience. But nobody I know has traveled Africa, black or white for that matter, but nobody I know has traveled Africa quite the way I did it. Hmm. You said in, in Mississippi Solo that a, what is it, a vacation is external and a pilgrimage is internal and an adventure, an adventure combines the two. Um, do you think a lot of black Americans go as a pilgrimage to Africa? 
I don't know now, but I think in those days, yes. Hmm. Africa was a destination for this roots kind of search, that kind of pilgrimage, to touch the soil of Africa. I think even, even today, people want to go there just because it's where we came from, and they want to find some resonance. And maybe they do, and maybe they don't, and maybe they come back with some sort of artificial resonance. Yeah. I don't know, I don't want to judge, but I know I came back with a human resonance and the feeling that in a political, cultural, existential sense, I'm just an American. Hmm. Do you think there might be an expectations versus reality energy there? I mean, we all take expectations during the place. We want to see the best version. We want to see the version we saw in our mind. Is the pilgrimage, is the black American pilgrimage to Africa tend to maybe risk over-idealizing certain aspects of it? I think that, that, that is potentially possible, sure. In Native Stranger, at some point I said, I don't know any more about Africa than I know from Tarzan movies. Hmm. And I think that's in those days and before that was pretty much the case. Africa was unknown. I think it's a lot more known now. But I think too that a lot of our travel becomes folklore, folklore based. And we want to we want to think that Africans still live in grass huts hmm. and they dance around traditional dancing all the time. And it just isn't the case. Africa is quite urban and very modern and it's timed and trying to hold on to that folklorish Africa I think is a way to stigmatize modernity and make hmm. to keep Africa in our imagination the way we think it was even in the Tarzan stupid Tarzan movies as opposed to saying Africa evolves like every place else let us help it to evolve in fact, the last part of that book talks about Western, the Western world, Europe especially, but also America. We need to, and China now, we need to get out of Africa and let Africa figure itself out. And sink if it has to sink, and then it will rise. Because there is modernity, modernity in, in Africa, there is intelligence in Africa, and there are buttloads of resources in Africa. It should be the richest place on the planet. But the fact that we keep our hand on it and keep idealizing it in this folklorist way, I think, helps keep them down as opposed to helping them uplift. I think one thing you're seeing more now in the, in the age of social media is Africa is full of really smart young people. Mm -hmm. And now you can listen to their podcasts <clears throat> and you can follow them on Twitter and just realize there's a lot of human capital there, you know? Yep. For, for years we've gone to Africa with sort of this missionary idea of donating to certain projects when in fact maybe we should just invest in a tech startup or a, yeah. some sort of project that is initiated by these smart young people. Well, in a way that's what China is doing in an exploitative way. Hmm. China is investing a lot of money in Africa. You see Chinese fishing boats all over the place. Chinese hospitals, Chinese football stadiums. They just throw tons of money in order to buy, basically, food for the Chinese. It's extractive a little bit. Yeah. <clears throat> Not unlike what we were doing for uranium and cobalt and whatever else we were getting from Mobutu. But it's the same mentality, but different. And what we should have done was found a way to keep everybody else out, just let the Africans do what Africa needs to do and figure it out. But everybody wants a finger in the pumpkin pie or the the plum pie, little Jack Horner sat in the corner, right. in the plum pie. Right. So we can take something out of the place mm -hmm. as opposed to helping them. And then we continue to prop up dictators who don't develop the, Mobutu, when I was in uh, Mugabe, when I was in Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe was a great place. Zimbabwe's a, a disaster now because we kept Mugabe in, in power, allowed him to stay in power, and he just raped the country, the same as Mobutu did in Zaire. So a lot of the problems in Africa are the result of what we did and we need more travelers to check it out and see what could be as opposed to what we want it to be. And maybe more storytellers that, that integrate African stories too. I mean, it's a long way since the old people living in huts age, you know, many more people live in 
like you say, in cities and they're telling their own stories and maybe as travelers we can just be clear-eyed and integrate their own stories. I don't know. No, I think that's, I think that's what travel is for, to get their stories, to merge their stories with our stories, our stories of their place, and to come away with something that enriches the traveler. I mean, that's, I think, what travel is all about. Yeah. Well, there's, there's several aspects of the way travel affected you as a traveler in Africa. I know one of the passages I quote in my new book is about how time is just experienced differently in a place like West Africa, where nobody expects the taxi to show up on time. And I'm paraphrasing, but you basically say, well, you sort of wake up, the day starts when you wake up and it ends when you go to bed and everything in between is less demarcated than the life back home. Yeah, and I wonder if my trip in Africa has somehow affected my trip through life. Hmm. Because I don't live by a clock. My day starts when I wake up, it finishes when I finish and go to bed. And I don't have those kinds of markers that most people have with birthdays and anniversaries and even baseball seasons. And I've stopped following sports in a certain way and I keep up with what's going on. But I don't, if you ask me when the All-Star game was, I couldn't tell you. I know it was in July. I think I know it was in July. It was in July. <laughs> Are you a Cardinals fan? I am a Cardinals fan. Okay. I'm a baseball fan. Okay. Without being a baseball fan. I'm a, I'm a fan of baseball without being a baseball fan, hmm. if that makes any hmm. sense. I love the game. I'm happy watching kids play as I am watching minor leaguers play. Mm-hmm. But who plays on the Cardinals apart from Pujols and some other guys. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm a Royals fan and they're not doing too well, so it's <laughs> not, a, not a very intention, attention-intensive season for me. Yeah, I gave up on that stuff because they make a lot of money and I don't begrudge them the money they make because they're good at what they do. But somehow it warps, it has warped the game. Hmm. And I just love the game itself. And as I said, I will go watch Little Leaguers play as easily as I will go watch and I prefer minor leaguers over major leaguers, in fact, because it puts me closer to the game, not just physically on the stadium, but also I can look at, however erroneous what I'm about to say is, I can look at minor leaguers and say, I can do that. I look at major leaguers, there's no way I can keep up with those did, guys. Did you play back in the day? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I never did. I played soccer. So. But I was a good baseball player, and I loved baseball. And when, I'm, when I was younger and seriously could look at ma- minor leaguers play, I could say, yeah, I can go out there and play with these guys. But there's mm-hmm. no way I can play with Albert Pujols. Right. Yeah. Well, um, we were talking about baseball as a way of marking the year. That's something that I actually feel. Um, but yeah, time is experienced different as a traveler. There's one other aspect of your book that, that stuck with me that I quote in my new book. It's about uh, encountering be- beggars. Mm-hmm. And there's an ex- you talk about how sometimes travelers kind of reward begging. You know, they have these little trinkets that they give to kids. And yours is one of the best answers to beggars as a traveler I've ever read, because you just sort of say, well, I don't know what we can do. I don't know what we can solve. We can know that they're there, but we as travelers are not in a position to solve anything. Um, perhaps begging is still something you encounter on the road. What, you, what is your Not just on the course? road, but in this, this morning, I went to the boulangerie and I got a croissant and there was a woman outside asking for money and, and I gave her some money. And in London, the other, yesterday, uh, the other day, a couple days ago, I gave some woman, a Romanian woman, who said, had a sign that said, I'm hungry. And it's hard to pass up a sign that says, I'm hungry. I just mm. want to buy her something to eat. Mm. But it doesn't solve the problem. Right. The problem remains and in Africa, yes, you can give money all day long, every place you go, and it doesn't change the, the situation. And a strange statistic or strange thing I heard the last time I was in the Central African Republic was the majority time spent by a Central African is looking for something to eat. And that just breaks your heart. Hmm. And it goes back to what are we doing as Westerners taking out and not finding a way to prop up Africa? 
it's just what we're taking away from them and not helping them to to have better lives. Yeah, I guess. So my giving a couple of coins to a guy on the street's not going to change that at all. Do you have a rule of thumb? When you're asked, it sounds like you were responsive in London. Do you have a default or is it situational? It's very situational. And the impulse is to give. <laughs> no, the impulse is always hmm. to respond. Hmm. And even if I don't, because when I went into the bakery, I didn't have any cash. In small enough quantities that I'm gonna to give to somebody. So when I came out, I had a euro and 20 centimes, which I gave her. But when I, before I went in, I had a little conversation with her and I said, I am, I have no change whatsoever, but I appreciate your, basically, I appreciate your situation and if I had more money, I'd, I'd give you something. And so when I came out, I did give her something. But I think the best I can do, and this is my response every time, is to make eye contact with this person, say something. Hmm. to acknowledge that this person is there and is or is not in need, because I don't know what the situation is. Maybe they're pretending. Mm -hmm. And I can't judge that. But I know how hard it is when I'm broke, how hard it is to ask friends for a loan or hmm. for some money. So I can't imagine being on a street corner with a cup asking strangers to, to give me money. It's got to be the worst. So I'm thinking, if you're in a situation when you're asking strangers for money, you probably need it. And at the very least, you deserve a conversation, a 30-second conversation to acknowledge that you exist. Have you ever been in a parallel situation? Uh, the reason I ask is once I was a bar tout in Jerusalem for a couple days, and it was so nice to be acknowledged. Even when they didn't take the flyer, I hated being ignored. And I was this privileged American guy just sort of hustling, trying to get some free drinks at a bar. <laughs> I don't know, if you, have you ever been in a situation where you've been no, but I've been in situations where I'd like to be ignored by the police, mostly. <laughs> Here or in the U.S.? Or? No, everywhere. Really? Whenever there's a police trying to and ignore me, please. <laughs> um, but being back to the American thing and being an American in Paris and being a black American in Paris, what's mm -hmm. interesting to me, one of the things that's interesting to me is how quickly a circumstance can change when it is recognized that I'm an American. Hmm. When I'm stopped for a driving infraction, which has happened, or even at a, at a round, roundabout checkpoint. Mm -hmm. When I get out of my car, before I hand over my driver's license, I hand over my passport. And to see how the situation quickly changes, how it could have evolved and how it does change to, ah, no problem, hmm. <laughs> let him go. Hmm. kind of thing. It's just amazing. Once in Angoulême, I was stopped. Oh, I don't know, I was badly parked or something. They just pulled me over. Three guys got out because they're always in threes in the car. And I gave out my passport. They checked it out to make sure it was for real. And the two older cops were ready to leave. Just, okay, see ya. But this young guy, who wants to show how cop copperly he is, wants to ask a few questions, and the other cops are trying, come on, let's go, it's okay. <laughs> it was very funny. Has that shifted as West African communities have become more visible in France? Has it, was there a time when people saw you and thought, oh, Josephine Baker, rather than poor people in the banlieue at the edge of the city? Um, Interesting, I, I think they still do. I think they still see Josephine Baker when they see me. Really? Or an American GI. Hmm. But they don't see, once they recognize that I'm an American, and you can see that almost instantaneously. You're wearing traveler pants, you're wearing quick dry <laughs> pants, and a ball cap. <laughs> so I'm, I'm recognizable as an American. Uh -huh. And with that Americanness comes in my backpack all of the power, economic and cultural, that America has. And it comes with a lot of respect. And somebody I was talking to, I was at a bookstore doing a lecture thing, doing a bookstore thing the other day. And in the question and answer period, this person, this man said to me, we owe you as an American. They don't owe me anything. I didn't do anything. I wasn't here when the owing happened. But we owe you something because you're an American. Hmm. Was it an older generation yeah. French person? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. 
and it's it's really strange. And how hitchhiking one night up in Normandy someplace, in the middle of the night, a cop stopped me, clearly wanting to see what I was doing there. Mm -hmm. Sees my passport, and now he's having a conversation about, I don't know what, but it turns into a conversation. And if you go through Normandy, even now, 50 years after the war, hmm. 70 years after the war, you still see American flags flying. No kidding. Huh? There is that, that, that sense that we'd be speaking German if you hadn't showed up. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. You think that'll go away eventually, generationally? I think we in America are doing a lot to erase it. Hmm. We had a big boost when Donald Trump, when Barack Obama was elected. Mm -hmm. A big unboost when Donald Trump was elected. Yeah. French people still do not. I don't understand it either. But French people still cannot understand how we went from Obama to Donald Trump. And even though Obama didn't do very much as a president, they still associate him with the hope of America. Hmm. And they look at Donald Trump and they see, oof, there's a country that's going off the rails. So some of that Normandy invasion respect and reverence sooner or later will, will dissipate. Is there a France dream? Is there, are there Senegalese immigrant kids who see themselves being president one day well, here in France? Well, the Senegalese in Senegal dream of France probably more or the French dream more than the Senegalese in France. Because we are a long way from having a French black president. Hmm. Okay. The number of representatives, a deputy in the, in the assembly, in the National Assembly, is limited to people from the, the Caribbean. I don't know how many metropolitan deputies there are in the Assemblée Nationale, who are of color. And why is it that? Don't know. People don't vote in representatives of color? Uh, not in great numbers, hmm. anyway. Hmm. And not in ways that are so visible. And because the, the, the districts are defined not like we gerrymander, gerrymander, hmm. gerrymander in America, there are more white folks who are voting than there are black people in a given constituency. And so, I mean, maybe that plays a role. I don't know. But we are here, we are a long way from having a black president. Have, has anything changed racially in France in the generation that you've lived here? Probably, but I don't know what it is. Partly because I'm not in the system the same way that I would if I were Senegalese and, hmm. or French. You have a free pass. I kind of have a free pass, but I'm also not in the system in the sense that I'm not looking for a job. Right. So if my name were Mustafa and I were looking for a job, I know I would have a harder time than if my name were Jean-Pierre. Right. And that's just a fact that everybody acknowledges it. They've tried to do some sort of nameless, faceless resume thing so that you can apply without identifying your, your racial or ethnic background. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't work either. Hmm. So it's really tricky. And I get a free pass because I'm not looking for a job. I'm not looking for housing. I am an American. And I'm not involved racially in the same way that I would be if I were living in America or if I were black and here and looking for work and living a normal life. As in my travels, I am kind of skimming the surface of this place. I've been here for a long time. I love being here. I have no plans to be anyplace else. But I'm still just on the surface. And I don't have any administrative problems because I have no connection to the administration except for paying my taxes. Huh. I'm going to read a section from my book um, that quotes Native Stranger, actually. It's sort of a, I quote you in several places, but there's one specific chapter that revolves around the focus is on Eddie Harris. <laughs> it's, it's September 7th, it says, don't let preconceptions blur what you see firsthand. The epigram is from Native Stranger. It says, more and more I'm trying to get used to African ways, trying to live them, trying to shed the snakeskin of assumptions and expectations and sensibilities of the world I come from. 
And then the, in the body, it says, if there's a reason why Eddie L. Harris isn't mentioned along Paul Theroux and Jan Morris as one of the great English language travel writers of the late 20th century, it could have something to do with the ironary, ironies of literary criticism. In 1992, when Harris followed up his best-selling 1988 debut, Mississippi Solo, with a travel book entitled, entitled Native Stranger, A Black American's Journey in the Heart of Africa, Afrocentrist critics took issue with the book's less than romantic depiction of the continent. The irony here is that despite the early 1990s academic vogue for Afrocentrism, Harris's naysayers tended to be ideologically minded Americans without much on the ground experience in the parts of Africa he'd written about. My book was a clear-eyed, accurate picture of a place I loved that I described in gritty fashion, Harris said it in a 2006 interview. I decried poverty and corruption, I hung out the dirty laundry, I guess, and no one wants you to do that. Three decades on, Native Stranger still speaks to the inherent contradictions of travel, to the complexities of making sense of one's own identity in a distant place, and how what we hope to discover in those places can be chastened and deepened and made more fully human when we, by what we find out when we slow down and leave ourselves open to the full breadth of experience. I had an eerie feeling Africa could teach me about life and what it means to be human, Deepen my appreciation for all that I am and all that I have, Harris wrote. Help me to step out of my cozy little world, out of myself, so that I could see myself better. Um, so what do you make of that? What do you make of the idea that some of us project onto the places in ways that might not be accurate to what we experience there? I think it's highly accurate, even me without overtly projecting without having many preconceptions. I fall into the situation where, well, I'm in another world, and I know I'm in another world. As a traveler. As a traveler. And I'm not sure it's the preconceptions thing that's the problem. It's bringing my own baggage with me of how I, th I know things are in the place where I came from. And I see this new place with those old eyes, and it takes a period of adjustment, like walking into a darkened room. It takes a period of adjustment so that you can under, at least understand where the need for bribes comes from. I bristle at the bribes. I don't want to pay a bribe. I'm not going to pay a bribe. I'd rather go to jail. At the same time, understanding that the police are not very, pay, very well paid, or the military is not very well paid, and they supplement their income that way. So it isn't the preconception, it's the bristling, because I brought my own perception, my old perception with me to this place. Your perception that bribes should not be yeah, paid. Yeah, right. And I react to that because of my old self. But the more I get into it, I still don't want to pay a bribe, partly because it's my money and I don't think I should be handing it out to anybody I don't want to hand it out to. But also, you, you can understand it. And, and you're in this world now where this stuff happens, and that's how life is lived. So get used to it on one hand, even if you don't want to participate, you still have to know that's how it works. So the snakeskin of assumptions is not just the stereotypes of the place you're going to, but it's the attitudes of the place you're coming from. Absolutely, I think it's more of that than the, than the stereotypes. Because I didn't have very many stereotypes of Africa. And when I went down the Mississippi River, I didn't have, I had no idea what I was going, getting into. And I think it's the same thing with Africa. I had no idea. I mean, Africa to me was a Tarzan movie, maybe. Otherwise, it's this place where most people who live there are black. Let's go find out. Hmm. That, that might be the, the slogan, the necessary slogan for travel. Let's go find out. I don't know what's there. I'm going to go see. I love that. I think that's why I like Native Stranger, because it's very <laughs> much a let's go find out book. And the irony is, and I didn't know this until we started talking right now, is that that book was sort of presented to you. It sort of fell into your lap from an American publisher who probably assumed you would, you would bring a certain African-American sensibility to Africa, yet you wrote a Let's Go and See book, which I think is why it's memorable after all this time. You know, that sort of the, 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 the ideology you may have brought there in 1992, 
might stay on stale now, but the let's go and see-ness of it feels fresh to me. Yeah, I'm not so sure, because I've been to Africa many, many times since that trip. Hmm. And I think some of the same things I saw then, I would see now. The poverty is still there, the corruption is still there, so a lot of that is there. But that wait and see-ness, or let's go see-ness, is, is the reason to travel. And the fact that it fell into my lap that way, it's interesting that what the publisher may have wanted was not what the publisher got, because Putnam canceled that contract. Did they? They didn't publish that book. Simon & Schuster published that book, because mm -hmm. Putnam got what they got and said, no thanks. No kidding. Is it because it was a let's see? I don't, they never said let's... why, they just said this is not gonna fly, and they asked me to fix things and do this thing and that thing, and. I couldn't see it. I wrote the book that I wrote. My Africa is my Africa, and this is my book about my Africa. And Simon and Schuster read it and said, we'll do it. Hmm. Give me the phrase again. Let's... Let's go see. Let's go see. <laughs> Let's go see. Um, anything to leave us with, with that in mind, as a guy who's been, who sort of had a let's go see attitude towards a lot of things in life. Any last thoughts for us as travelers? I think Let's Go See encompasses the whole thing, the whole reason to, the whole, the whole raison d'etre of travel. Let's go see. Let's, especially let's go someplace new and see what's there. And then when we've discovered it, let's go someplace new again. And let's find out. Let's meet these people and take them back with us to where we came from. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about Native Stranger and Eddie L. Harris's other travel books, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.